Blog Talk Radio. Hi and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. John Schimmel is is in the middle of an extraordinary, diverse career as a writer-producer. He's been the president of Further Films and Ascendant Pictures, an executive of Douglas Wuther Productions, Bel Air Entertainment, and Warner Brothers, co-opened the Tony-nominated musical Pump Boys and Dinettes, published fiction and nonfiction, including his first book, Screenwriting Behind Enemy Lines, Lessons from Inside the Studio Gates. John currently works as a senior producer for Cloud Emporium Games, the Guinness Book of World Records as the largest crowdfunding effort in history. John is also part of the core screenwriting faculty at the University of California at Riverside's Low Residency MFA program in creative writing and writing for the performing arts, providing not just an insight into how to write screenplays, but how to write screenplays that sell. And Carol, I see that John's book is published by Michael Weesey, who also published your book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol uh, Carol might be having a little bit of a delay on her response here because we're having a little bit of um, uh, technical difficulties. John, thank you so much for joining us. We love working with the Michael Weesey Group. Uh, they're fantastic. They, 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 they um, <laughs> it, there was a wonderful irony in my working with them because I was a development executive for years, which meant that I spent a lot of time putting writers through the hell of kind of rewrites, and um, they chose to do that to me in, in, in crafting a table of contents for this book before they accepted it. So, but, but <laughs> it was quite a circular process, but it was, they were great. Their guidance was wonderful, and, and uh, I'm really happy with the book that they helped me craft. Well, wait, it's a wonderful book. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think that you have brought out some important information that I've never seen in other books before. And I uh, really, I've got a lot of good questions I want to ask you about the book, but I thought I would get started with the new company that you're working for, Cloud Imperium Games. Can you tell us uh, what they do and who they are? Cloud Imperium Games um, was founded by Chris Roberts, who I worked for at Ascended Pictures. Chris, in the 90s, was a major uh, kind of celebrity game creator. Um, uh, He created a game called Wing Commander, which was huge uh, in that world and um, was actually the first game to to inject live film elements into his games. And then he took a break and went into the film business, which is when I met him. And... and, um, and Ascendant Pictures, for all kinds of reasons, went the way of so many independent film finance companies. And Chris uh, decided to go back into the game business, and he thought 
he would launch a crowdfunding campaign to raise four million bucks so he could make a game. And we're now at something like $112 million in crowdfunding money. It's quite astonishing. Oh, my gosh. $112 million he raised? $112 million and still and still pouring in. Yeah, it's, 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 oh. it's quite something. It, it, it's been a... Uh, uh, I mean, this is an aside and probably has nothing to do with what you wanted to talk to me about, but it's been a fascinating exercise in storytelling, uh, watching him craft the story for his fans that led to the success of the campaign. It, it, it's well, it's all about storytelling. So he's taking uh, his film talents, his writing talents, uh, and turning it into the crowdfunding talents. Well, I think filmmakers would be very interested in understanding how he did this. So where, where did they go to read about it? Where is it online? Well, the, webs, the company website is... Um, is Roberts, R-O-B-E-R-T-S, robertsspaceindustries.com. And um, so, you, you know, one can read it all about the, both the game and the company there. Um, there have been very, various articles um, in, in gamer magazines and in the Wall Street Journal, and there, it was mentioned in The New Yorker at one point, cause the, because the nature of the campaign is so... It's, it's so obviously it's interesting because it's so successful, and and also because it's sort of um, it's sort of unique. It's ta- taken the notion of open development and 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 sort of kicked it into a new level. Um, so our fans are, or the fans of the company. I don't know that they're my fans, <laughs> but the fans of the company um, really get an inside look at what at what's going on as the game is developed, games are developed. And they're paying for the game that will be delivered later, is that it? They're paying, they're paying, well, there's a couple of, 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 but yes, they're paying for the game. It's a space simulator. So, uh, it's a space simulator, so they're also able to buy spaceships that that they can now fly in various kind of early incarnations of the game. We're building two games, of a single player and a multiplayer, and, and the multiplayer universe is, has started to, to be open to the public and, and people can fly their ships around that and do various things. Oh my gosh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> it's, a real, it's a huge amount of fun to, to work on, for sure. And which crowdfunding platform did he use? His own. He's, he created he, his own. Yeah, he st- he he started on his own, on his own site, and then when they launched, they broke the site because there were, was so, so much traffic. So they went on Kickstarter for a little while, and then pulled it back to their own site, and it's been on his own site on Robert Space Industries ever since. Fabulous! How smart! It, yeah, well, well, right. well, well worth Thank studying. I keep telling the founders of the company that they should just retire from the game business and lecture the con- give, travel the country lecturing on how they did this. But they seem to be how to create fun. a camp- that successful <laughs> campaign. That <laughs> would be a great thing to learn. I mean, yeah, yeah. I've been dealing with Indiegogo for uh, four years now, mm-hmm. and when I started, it was the Wild West. But we we have some history and statistics that we can work with, so we know what we're doing now. But that is an incredible way to start a business. It's wonderful. Um, 
Right. Well, let's go to the book because I have to tell you the screenwriting behind Enemy Lines is, has become my second favorite. You, it's a fight for who's getting first place here between you and Save the Cat, um, and that <laughs> I've had for ten years as the top book. You really brought a lot of knowledge from the industry that uh, is important to all of us. Uh, it's as if we're talking to you. When I read the book, I could. It was almost as if I had you in the room and you were just explaining things to me in a nice, easy way to get it done. And what a nice thing to say. Supportive. That's lovely. Thing. I mean, thanks for saying that. That's a nice thing to hear. Well, good. All right, so let's get started with Chapter 1 because it, it's a great title, Stuff You Should Know Before You Start. So maybe you could just give us three things that you think are important. Well, I, I think that... Um, you know, writing a screenplay obviously is, is right. You're writing for many different audiences, and I think that it's important to keep them all in mind uh, when you're writing. And and I think that the, the one of the things that people forget is that their first audience isn't their film-going audience; it's the audience of people who can get their film made, right? So, in some ways, the screenplay is a sales pitch. Right, it, you're 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 wanting to convince agents and managers and filmmakers and financiers that you you the writer know your world, that you are um, that that you know how to deliver um, story and dialogue and screen and film language that will attract um, movie stars and uh, and 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 great filmmakers, right? And and so you're sort of you're sort of Writing, I think, in part for that audience, and that means writing in a style that that allows them to really see the film and not get horribly bogged down in in uh, language or confusing transitions. Um, and I think it's also Im- important to say that that in doing that, it, it's not as crass as it sounds. At least I hope it's not, because um, the truth is that paying attention to those things it turns out to be what makes a a really good screenplay, right? You're you're trying to write a good role to attract somebody, but you're trying to write a really good role because the character will pop on the screen, right? It's, it's all part of the same exercise. Right. Well, what uh, I liked, another thing I liked about the book was of the exercises that you had at the end of each chapter. And if someone just took your book as a workbook and did those things, they could improve. I don't care how good you are, you would improve immediately. So give us some of the suggestions you had at the end of Chapter 1. Uh, I don't know that I have them in my, in my head. I, I think that, that, you know, um, the, the things that I, I think need to be thought of at the beginning of, of the writing process is who you're writing for, who your audience is. Um, I think, you know, I think that it's important to know, to really decide what genre that you're writing in, to start to think about right at the beginning who your, who your main characters are. And, and, um, and I know that, that all of that sounds kind of obvious, but it's all the, it's all the stuff that, that um, if it's not really clear in your head, will completely trip you up as, as, as a writer. And when I say it's important to, to think about when you start, 
you know, I think everybody's writing process is different, but for me it's really iterative, and I like to sort of set these these things up in my in in my head, and then and then keep going back to the same exercise as I'm going. You know, every couple of days, you know, I'll I'll find a stopping place and go back and say, okay, who's who is my main character and what do they want and and uh, who am I writing for and am I am I sticking close to the core of the of the piece and what is the theme, right? Keep going around and around and around to to that and and then uh, sort of revising the pages as as I start to because I think that you learn what you're writing as you go. At least at least I do. I think it I think it, it becomes much more obvious halfway through what you're writing than it was when you started. Definitely. I, I it, totally understand that. Well, chapter and two... And it sort of keeps you, out, keeps you out of development hell, you know, to sort of keep reminding yourself of where the pitfalls might be. Exactly. Um, chapter two says <clears throat> what drives a film. Uh, and it's, it gives you a great look, as you say, under the hood. As you say, the plot of the film will usually place your protagonist in three separate but interlocking journeys. So tell us about these type of journeys. Well, I think that they are interlocking. I think that, that um, you know, these questions that I'm afraid can sound pedantic, but hopefully don't lead to pedantic screenplays, but, you know, what, is your, what, do you, what does your character want and what do they need, which is not the same and is often actually at lot those two things are often at loggerheads for much of the of the film right that your that your character discovers that they want something more than anything in the world but there's something that they need that's actually more more important than that that they need to acquire in terms of self-knowledge or knowledge of their world before they can actually complete that journey and then there's a there's uh, uh, almost always some kind of a parallel I, I call it a love story but I don't mean in any traditional romance but there's almost always a, some kind of a relationship story that, that parallels the main story so it's, th it's those three stories that I think are important and sometimes they coincide of course sometimes the main romance is also the point of the film and sometimes it's a it's, it's a sort of a side story mm-hmm I like to re a reference, um, and it's not a new film, but I think it's one of the great films to, to study in terms of what makes a good Hollywood film, which is The Fugitive that, that uh, David Tui wrote and that Andy Davis directed. Um, and and it's, you know, it's interesting to note that the, that the antagonist of that film, who is played by Tommy Lee Jones, is also, is also the... the, the denouement of the film depends on the sort of unspoken bromance that develops between uh, Tommy Lee Jones's character and Harrison Ford's character and, and Harrison Ford's character winning the, the respect of the man that's been pursuing him throughout the movie. That's right. We all felt that. We felt like they cared for each other. Um, but but uh, Tommy Lee Jones was intent on finding him, and Harrison was intent on proving that he was innocent. So they, uh, it, it was a very powerful film, and that because of all that action that you had in there, right? 
Yeah, I think it, I think it was. I mean, I I have students study that film for all kinds of reasons. One of them is what we just talked about, and one of them is what you just said, which is that it's one of the clearest examples I can think of of great great character um, created and demonstrated through action. You know, Harrison Harrison's words are much less vital in the in the construction of his characters than than the fact that he risks his life to to save one of his captors when the train is about to, to crash into the bus that's tumbled over on the tracks or when he chooses to leap off that dam rather than be captured by Tommy Lee Jones or when he chooses to help you know somebody on a gurney uh and and risk capture right all those moments that are that there's they're dialogue free largely um, and they they completely define his character, and I I think that 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 creates such powerful film language. You know, it, it speaks in the way that that music does. It sort of owns us in a kind of a deep emotional way. I think. Absolutely, I love it when you can tell characters in the very beginning, <clears throat> and I think sometimes back in the fifties and sixties, uh, HUD. Um, you could you just looked at his body language and the way he walked and held himself and you sort of knew his character. Um, and getting that character across in the first two or three minutes, it, in my opinion, is the way that that you can enjoy the film more. You know who it is. Totally, I, t- totally. I mean, sometimes it's it's a kind of an interesting line to walk. It depends on the kind of film you're walk you're writing. Sometimes. You, one wants a character to be a little bit mysterious, right? And and we sort of unreveal who they are as we go. And sometimes we want to know right from the get-go um, what makes them what makes them tick and what makes them particularly unlikely to succeed in the journey that they set themselves on. Because I think that's part of the fun of films is you go. Oh, this poor guy has, or woman has no chance at all. <laughs> and then watching <laughs> it sort of succeed, right? It's a completely yes. sadomasochistic relationship writers have with their characters. Right. Great. Well, I love The Fugitive, too. I think that's a very powerful film. It's some, something you can watch over and over every year or two. It's a great film. But tell us what the studio did not understand about The Fugitive and how they almost killed the film. Well, I have to confess that, that part of the studio that didn't understand it was me. <laughs> um, so I, this is sort of, sort of self um, and public flagellation. But, but um, I think that we did not understand um, as executives how exactly what I was just talking about, that the character was completely revealed through his actions and, and through being constantly in motion. And we pushed David Toohey endlessly. To, there, there, used to, there used to be a scene, a series of scenes, where he was, um, Harris, Harrison's character, Richard Kimball, was picked up on the road by a waitress. He was hitchhiking, he was picked up on the road by a waitress, and he spent the night, and um, in some versions there was a romance, and in some version there wasn't, but that he had time to sort of kind of... Um, reminisce about his feelings about his wife and what was going on and we really liked that stuff and we're pushing for more of it and Tui said 
it stops the film. The film never. The, the whole point is that he never gets to stop or rest. He's never going to have a relationship with another woman because he's mourning his wife, and uh, and everything you need to know about him is already revealed in how he acts. So really, can you just you know let me make my movie? <laughs> and he was he, he, he was completely right. And it, and it, and and it was. I remember get the senior executive on 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 the film was a, a really brilliant guy named Bob Brassel, and Brassel went to Chicago to to be on set, and I remember him calling me and say, saying, you know, we figured it out and we're dropping all that stuff. And me being briefly horrified and then realizing, of course, he was completely right. Yes. Yes, only time will tell on things like that, and you certainly did the right thing by taking that out. That, um, that would have slowed the film down. Who's right? Yeah, it would, have been, it would have been a disaster. Um so, you know, for, fortunately, wisdom prevailed, as it not, does not always do in the studios, as you know. Right. But speaking of wisdom, let us share with us some of your wisdom on creating great characters. Uh, well, I think that, that um, boy, you, you know, creating great characters is, is getting to the place it has to do with getting to the place where they're creating you or they're creating their, themselves in, 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 in some way, knowing them so well that you know how they dress and how they talk and wh- how they were educated and, um, um, and, of course, primarily what it is that they want in their, in their lives and what it, it, relative to the film and what their kind of internal contradiction is. Right, because what makes a great film character is um, uh, Diane wants to 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 become an attorney, but she's never been, she grew up in a trailer park and has never been able to afford any version of an education. Right, where where right. where the where the where what you want is as impossible as you can make it for that character, and then you and then you get to root for them overcoming. You know, and, it, and the, the degree of, of contradiction is relative to the context of the, of the film, right? And the fugitive to go back and, and beat that horse to, to death. Um, um, Harrison, Harrison was a Harrison's character was a physician, a middle class, upper middle class physician, hell bent on always doing the right thing, who was forced by circumstances to become an outlaw and survive on the road and evade the cops and bring to justice the man who who murdered his wife and he was and because of the first half of that he was completely unlike it was completely unlikely that he would succeed in the second part and yet he did and the i think part of what's so interesting about that film is that he succeeded by staying exactly true to who he was because even though always doing the right thing often put him in danger of capture it was also the thing that, at the end of the day, convinced Tommy Lee Jones' martial character, U.S. martial character, that he was a good guy and should be um, rescued at the end of the day. He needed to be stood by. The very interesting kind of development of, the, of, of how that particular contradiction played out. Yes. Well, I also would like you to share with everyone the William Goldman story about Butch Cassidy. 
Well, uh, I don't. The, Butch. I mean, I think that Butch Cassidy is one of the great screenplays to read. You know, for all kinds of reasons. I think that that um, uh, he probably better than anybody that I've ever read writes. I mean, we're writing motion pictures, right? That's right. Movies are motion pictures, and he writes motion and energy into every sentence that he that he puts on the page. And um, uh, and and so reading his reading his scripts, you you know, you come off every page knowing what that page would look like and what it would feel like and what the energy of it is, and you're completely drawn into forward motion which is, I think, one of the tricks of writing a great screenplay as opposed to, um, you know, getting horrifyingly bogged down in para- long paragraphs of description and, and uh, you know, and, and various, various mistakes that some writers make where, where you, can't, you, can't, you can't ever get moving. You're always sort of stuck in one place trying to figure out what's there. Right, what what the writer intends, as opposed to it's clear, it's crystal clear, and it's he he knows the single um, descriptor that tells you everything you need to know about a moment, and then moves on. I think it's it's quite it's, it, his script. That script is well worth studying for that. Well, these are two scripts you'd you'd recommend studying: Butch Cassidy and The Fugitive. Well. Butch Cassidy and the Fugitive and uh, and Chinatown. Chinatown's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. I love nice that. Life. Those first scenes with Jack Nicholson were terrific because you got his character and he opened the the uh, uh, thing behind him and there were two bottles of whiskey and he took the cheap whiskey to get the guys. And when the guy was standing there crying, Jack was wiping his tears off of his spotless disc like, come on, don't bother me. Yeah, no, no, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. It's such a great, I mean, it's, you know, sort of one of the great cliches of screenwriting teachers, I think, to talk about The Fugitive, but, I mean, about Chinatown, but, it, you know, Robert Town is as good as they get. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah, it was. Well, um, in the book, you talk about the relationship between structure and character. Could you share some of that? Uh, I I can um, I think I think that um, I I need to gather these thoughts for a minute. It, 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 the, the the thing is that your char- your you can't actually create a clear compelling character unless the the screenplay hits the beats that it needs to hit unless the structure works. Now. Um, uh, I know that that Save the Cat is your first favorite book, so I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> risk our our newfound love affair, but um, <laughs> by saying this. But I think that what's not what the, the piece of, of Save the Cat that I don't agree with is, is that you have to hit a, hit those beats on a particular page at a particular moment. What I do agree with, absolutely, is that you have to hit them, and so you can't you cannot know in in a film. As a screenwriter, you can't define your protagonist in any compelling and clear way unless there's a clear, inciting incident which changes the protagonist's life 
and create something that they're going to want for the rest of the film. It's, it, 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 it absolutely has to be clear that beat, or you might as well just, you know, sort of enroll in development hell. <laughs> and and um, and 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 the same thing goes for the for the major beats, um, you, you know, in screenplay structure. You have to come to that first plot point, the first opportunity, the first real opportunity that the protagonist has to pursue that want. It has to be a little bit scary, right, for the protagonist, or daunting, or challenging, or dangerous. Right. And and the, and the and the, the, the a clear moment of decision. This is what I'm doing. I'm going to go do this thing, even though I'm scared to death. Is a is a you, you sort of if you don't have that moment, audience audiences are looking for it in in you know sort of mainstream motion pictures. I don't know that is true in every movie in in um, Europe. You know. But in, if we're, you're writing in the states, and you're writing for Hollywood, and you're writing for a mainstream audience. Those beats have to be there for the for the character to be um, to be clear. Um, and 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 it's same with it's the same with every other with every other um, right with every one with the with the midpoint with the second um, plot point. You know all those decision points where your character shows him or herself. Through the decisions that they make um, to pursue the thing that they want, I think are, are incredibly in, important. Um, and I would add that, and I don't know that this is exactly this is exactly answering your question, but um, Matt Stone and Trey Parker gave this um, there's a, like a genius five minute clip about that's uh, an excerpt of a, of a talk they gave at NYU, and uh-huh. they talk about this incredibly important structural thing, which is that in any storyline in your script, two consecutive scenes have to be connected either by but then or therefore. This happens, therefore this happens, but then this happens, therefore this other thing happens, right? And they say if at any time you get an and then this happens and then that happens, you've let all the air out of your story. And those those reversals and how your protagonist or antagonist deals with those reversals. This ha- I thought I was on the right track, but damn it, I'm not on the right track. Now what I'm going to do? Those are the moments that reveal the character. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's in my opinion, it's the best five minutes on screenwriting that exists. Where do we find that? It's it's, uh, it's on YouTube actually. Matt Stone and Trey Parker. I, I've I can find it and email you the link if you like. It's a real, it's it's really great. They sort of they sort of surprise the class and and there's it's sort of what is made to feel like in any way a kind of an impromptu talk and this is just an excerpt from it. But I think it's spectacularly wise. Right. So I, it's Mass Stone, M A S T O N E, and T R A Y Parker. T R E Y Parker. They're the guys that created South Park and Book of Mormon and. Right. It's sort of hard to imagine. I, I mean, it makes perfect sense that people who are that kind of successful also are that wise about screenwriting, although it's kind of hard to take South Park and go, oh, I'm going to study that and figure out how to write the next Chinatown. <laughs> <laughs> well, but they are very successful. You're absolutely right. Okay, that's a good tip. We'll look at that. Um, 
Oh, gosh. There's so many wonderful things in the book, but one of them is you say there's no such thing as a screenplay that is ready to submit after only one draft. Um, so what does that mean? That means you have to rewrite, go into rewrite hell. Is that what happens next? Yeah, I don't think it. I mean, a lot of people think it's hell. I, I, I don't. I think it's where the real fun begins. I, you know, for me, certainly most of my experience both as a writer and as a as a executive and a and a teacher, which are sort of similar things. Um uh, the first draft is often kind of, you know, you take all the ideas that you can think of and you kind of throw them up on the page. And uh and then your job is to go back and unearth what's actually there. Which I think is really, really difficult. Actually it it, it it's fascinating to to me how many writers have incredibly great materials kind of embedded in their scripts that, that they need help kind of chiseling away the stuff that, that's obscuring it to get to the, the core that they, it's not anything, you know, I invented. It's that they put it there, but it's hard. It's sometimes very hard for them to see. But I think that, that the, you know, the rewrite process is often, uh, uh, it's often challenging because writers like to think that they, you know, the work is done and they worked for a year on the script and it's perfect. Um, and it, and it rarely is. In my career, I, I, and I don't know how many drafts were done before the script ended up on my desk. I think Ed Wood was basically made without any rewriting at all. Um, and I'd like to think that Monsters Ball was because the spec draft was about the best script I've ever read and I don't think much was done to it and I don't think very much was done to the Matrix because I don't think anybody understood it but that's a whole other thing <laughs> right Mo- yeah, but mostly there you know stuff is, is is rewritten and you know one of the one of the tricks in that process is to try and guide it so it, it you know as a as your as your as a writer one of the real challenges is to find a way to take feedback that doesn't completely derail you. And I mean that in two ways. I mean that it doesn't derail you by breaking your heart, right, and insulting you. And it doesn't derail you in that there are too many suggestions that you're, all, you're trying to take literally and, and so go off in 400 different directions and completely destroy the very fragile thing that was there to begin with. It's a tricky process. Definitely is. Well, you you have eight rules of the rewrite process in the book, so just give us a few of those so we understand. Well, sort of what I was just saying, right? The the first rule, really, is that the script is never, ever as good as you think it is when you finish the first draft. Um, you know, it feels it's sort of like you know you're no longer banging your head against the wall. It feels so good to be finished. Um, uh, but it's you know, you you always have to approach a first draft with tremendous open-mindedness that uh, you, you may not have gotten everything that you intended onto the page. And, and I think that the second rule is to get people that you really trust to read it um, so that you can get objective feedback and smart feedback. And then yes. the, third, the third rule um, which is what I was just talking about, is to take all the advice from those very smart people and completely ignore it. <laughs> by which, <laughs> by which I mean, um, not their not their kind of broad general feedback, 
because that that will almost always be important. But you sort of have to reject almost on principle specific suggestions because they often come from a from a they often come from a place of real generosity, but they also often come from a place of not understanding the process and what's what's behind the decisions that you, the writer, made. And I think that the trick is to take all the feedback and find the the kind of core of it. You know, here's here what what all of this means is that this thing, this one, this piece of it was weak, and if I bolster that, I don't have to do what they say I need to do, but it'll make it feel like I've done what they say they need to do because I've clarified it. Um, and it's a it's a it's a real trick, and and I I think I I, I talk about this in in the book, but the 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 um, the wisdom of this uh, I wish I could claim it, but it it comes from the great film editor Dee Dee Allen, right, who direct who edited uh, Reds and Bonnie and Clyde and all kinds of great um, films, and, and she was on she was our post production guru at Warner Brothers when I was there. Um, and I, I was lucky enough to be in the cutting room with her for a while. And her great piece of wisdom was that um, sort of newbie filmmakers and newbie editors will see a problem in real five of a film and dive in to try and fix the scene in real five, when in fact the problem probably is in real one or real two, that, that the problem isn't in the scene that you're looking at it's it's in the setup of that scene and that you have to go back and look at the antecedents to find out what you didn't set up to make the situation that you're in four wheels later um, powerful Um, and I and 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 of course film editing and screenwriting are closely related right I think the editor is the final polisher on on the on the script so you know, it's well worth paying attention to that wisdom. And in fact, one of the reasons that people's um, advice, given with the best of intent, is is it's, is important not to take is that it's often specific to the scene that didn't work for them. They read a scene and, or, or a part of the script and they, and they go, you know, that this, this didn't really work for me. And so maybe, you know, you need to do this. And in fact, you might need to do this, but you won't know until you go back and you go back and go well if that scene doesn't work it might be because the character isn't clearly drawn and so I have to go back and look at where I fell down as a writer and draw clearly defining the character and then that will inform the parts of the script that your readers say don't work and it'll it'll inform how to fix it without completely decimating your, <laughs> your structure that you spent a year constructing that is brilliant. That makes so much logical sense. Right. Yeah, it, it's 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 an impo- I think it's a really important lesson for all kinds of reasons. I think that that it. Um, I find um, you know there's a lot of screenwriters who are very bitter at the kind of you know what they consider completely moronic notes that they get and the way that those notes destroyed their projects. And of course, I've seen it happen. Right. Um, and probably guilty of giving those notes, but but I think that one of the ways of evo- avoiding um, that bitterness is to accept some of the blame yourself. In other words, like your characters, it's not 
is not the note that's so bad as the way that you take the note, or, or to put it in the positive, the note may be really good, but you, the writer, have to find a way to interpret it. And, 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 and if, you, if you own the process and don't try and be too literal with your reaction to a, a particular set of notes, then you can save yourself a whole lot of bitterness, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yes, it does. It makes great sense, John. Thank you. So tell me about the University of California at Riverside. What classes are you having this fall? It's an extraordinary program. Um, uh, one of the things that's extraordinary is it's taken me about four years to be able to say the entire name of the program. It's the University of California's Low Residency MFA program in Creative Writing and Writing for the Performing Arts. You can't say that more than once um, in any given period of time. Um, and it's run, the program is an offshoot of, of, of the UC California at Riverside uh, writing program. Uh, for those of your listeners who don't know what low residency programs are, they're sort of proliferating, in the crea- especially in the creative writing field. And they're quite wonderful for people who have lives but also want to study um, creative writing. Um, you, you do... Uh, most of the work online, or if in some cases you actually go to the post office and mail your work to your advisor, hard as that may seem to believe in this world, and and uh, you do that three. We're on the quarter program system, quarter, yeah. So we they deliver three packets per quarter to me and get feedback, and then we have two very intense ten day residencies a year in this case in, in uh, at a resort in Palm Desert and the program is run by a, um, a prolific and marvelous crime writer named Todd Goldberg and Todd's whole agenda is to create is to is to educate writers who are both great writers and working writers so the guests that that show up at the residencies there are I mean, the coming residency, we have the um, Pulitzer Prize winner this year showing up to talk about his writing. But in addition, there are editors and agents and publishers um, coming to read students' work and advise them on how to move forward with a career as a writer. So it, it's a it's a really inter, it's a really interesting program. It's not it, he has no interest at all in cranking out people who write in their attics and nobody ever sees it. Um, uh, he wants people out there publishing their work and having their voices heard or read. Um, so I teach I I teach um, screenwriting at that at that program and I teach two two different classes of it although they're identical. Um, because you have to, in the UC Riverside program, you declare a main genre, and then you declare a cross-genre. So if you're there as a poet, you can also, then you can choose to be a screenwriter as cross-genre or vice versa, right? So I, I teach a class to main genre writers, and I teach a class to cross-genre writers, but they're both basically you know, screenwriting classes. Wonderful. Just uh, tell us how we can go online and find that. Uh, uh, it's it's um, I don't have the the uh, URL in front of me, but it's UC Riverside's Low Residency MFA program. If you in creative writing, if one goes online and looks that up, uh, uh, it's it's findable. 
Um, there's a Facebook page um, for UC Riverside Low Residency MFA program. Um, yeah, it's a great program. I, I can't. I can't. The faculty is utterly remarkable. Sounds great. Well, uh, John, tell us where we can get your book, Screenwriting Behind Enemy Lines. Uh, well, I'm hoping all, <laughs> all kinds of places. Uh, you know, the Writer's Bookstore has it. Um, the um, ever-maligned Amazon has it. Um, Michael, I think you can buy it through Michael Weezy's site, directly through his site. Right. Um, yeah, any of, any of those things. You can come to UC Riverside and buy it off the table of faculty books that set up <laughs> every residency. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's out there. Um, but I, um, I don't even... I don't, I, I don't, I don't track it, my, you know, anymore to know exactly what bookstores it, it's in. But it's certainly ava available. Great. Well, Amazon has become the place, but also it's mwp.com. That stands for Michael Weezy Publications, so you can that's get right. it there. Yeah, yeah, and that's a site well worth going on because Michael Weezy, um, because he's probably an angel. Um, you know, is the guy that the guy that you know his publishing empire backs. You know, many of the be of if not most of the really great films on filmmaking craft in general, editing and directing and producing and financing and uh, and writing. Um, so going on that side is a really concentrated way of finding great great books on the filmmaking craft. It certainly is. Well. Thank you so much, John. Tell us how people could reach you. Uh, I have a website. I was uh, a screenwriter and educator named Jewel Selbo, and she and I launched a site together called Screenplay Consulting Services. So it's screenplayconsultingservices.com, and uh, that's the that's the easiest way to hunt me down. That's great. Screenplayconsultingservices.com. Thank you exactly. very much. Sure. All right. Well, good luck with the book and with the games that you're producing. That sounds like a fun job. It's it, it's it's yeah. It's been amazing. It's been a great learning curve because it's not the the world. Neither the world of games nor the world of digital production were in my lexicon really two years ago. So it's it's been a great learning curve, and I think we're 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 getting amazing stuff. So I think the game is going to be terrific. Um, and uh, and it's great to have an excuse to be in London for weeks at a time. Yes. <laughs> that alone is worth it, I'll tell you. I love it. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for joining us, and thank you very much, Claire, for hosting the show. And uh, we will uh, be back next week, next Wednesday, with another great interview. And thank you for uh, the personal wisdom in your book, Screenwriting Behind Enemy Lines. We really enjoyed it. Thank you both very much. Thanks for having me. I, I enjoyed okay, this. Okay, John. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Be well. Bye. Thanks so much. Thank you, Claire. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. 
legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to the Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone. <laughs>